Thank you, Ethan and Wendy. Sounds just like that when Pastor Byron and I come in here during the week and <laughs> play together. <laughs> uh, when I was a student in LSU, they were just beginning an organization called Rotaract, and it was the college version of the Rotary Club. And one of my advisors encouraged me to uh, interview for that organization. And the person who ultimately interviewed me was a guy named Buddy Romer. And uh, I he has some political aspirations. I don't know what came of them. But uh, he was former governor at that point. And, and I just remember he asked a question. He said, where do you want to be in five years? And I was a sophomore at LSU. And uh, my response was in the center of God's will. That was my response. I, I just, you know, where do you want to be? I, I knew that I would most likely go to seminary. I knew that, uh, though I didn't, <laughs> didn't anticipate staying at seminary as long as I did, but my response was... Uh, I just want to be in the center of God's will. I thought that would pretty much seal the deal with that organization, but uh, I got in and uh, <laughs> became chaplain my first year. Surprise. And uh, then my senior year, I was president of this organization, and I really loved it. I loved it. You know, one thing I always try to encourage BCM students is don't just stay with BCM students. Don't just stay on that corner of the campus. If all the light stays gathered in one place, then in the world is darkness going to ever be changed you've got to be involved in other organizations and I found too what I would say to our youth to our teenagers and to our college students I found that you can be faithful to Jesus and Jesus puts you in leadership positions Jesus moves you you don't have to compromise in order to get somewhere I, I was on the homecoming court at LSU I wore sequins I'm just kidding there, there, were, there are guys you know and uh, five guys I got to be a part of leadership LSU and all of that I saw as the Lord's provision, not because I was great or because I needed to be in these, but the Lord's hand. And so that's where I would say to you, don't sell Jesus out. Don't sell the gospel out. Live and watch what God does. He's done it with Joseph. A young Jewish boy ends up as second in command of all of Egypt. How does that happen? For nothing will be, what's the rest of it? Impossible with God. All right. Remember that from last year? Good. I know Haley does. But nothing will be impossible with God, Luke 1, 37. So God moves in these ways. Well, it's an interesting thing. With the Rotary Club, it's the college version of the Rotary Club, and they say prayers. And it just so happened, as I would say my prayers, I would end them in Jesus' name. And uh, it didn't take long for folks to approach me and say, hey, we don't mind you praying, but you can't pray in Jesus' name. And... Uh, it was really funny because uh, there were some things, I guess, going on politically about that same time or whatever. But I just said, well, you can impeach me. But <laughs> as long as I'm president, I'm going to keep praying in Jesus' name because one day I will give an account for this time to the Lord. And I don't know if it, as a college student the Lord just gave me a good self-awareness of these things or a fear of ultimately knowing that this was his time and his ways. But I continued to pray in Jesus' name because I wanted to be faithful to him above all else. And if I prayed in anyone else's name, friend, it's not getting answered. There's only, there's only one way that, you know, these things are going to happen. And I share all of that because we are transitioning in Romans 12. We have been studying Romans 12 for about two months, I guess. And uh, we have been studying the gospel community. And as I share each week, if you missed it, we walked through the book of Galatians, really learning to say what is the gospel word and how Christ took our place. 
we transition from there into Romans 12 to say, then how does this word impact our lives? What difference does it make? And Paul and the New Testament writers seem to think the gospel should make a big difference in our lives. And you have in Romans 12, then, how it should be lived out. The gospel isn't just to be accepted, it's to be lived. And it should be evident. And we become the gospel community. And so for the past several weeks, we've been studying vital signs of the gospel community. We were in 9 through 13 for a considerable time of Romans 12. We're now going to transition. And we're no longer talking about just the gospel community and how we relate to one another. For this Sunday, and should the Lord give us the next two Sundays, we'll finish Romans 12. How about that? We're going to finish Romans 12. Pastor Byron's going to preach on the 26th, and then we'll start a new emphasis in January. But uh, what we transition now from is just the gospel community and how we relate to one another to when the gospel community is actually involved in the community. When we go from being the church gathered to the church scattered, and we go out into the world. And that's where we're called to live radically. It's where we're called to live countercultural. And I want to emphasize to you, we're not talking about good living. We're talking about gospel living. That's the difference. We're not talking about being good people. We're talking about being gospel people in the world. As followers of Christ, we are called to not only do good to those who do good to us, but also to those who harm us. If we're going to make a difference in Baton Rouge for the sake of the gospel, it won't be just because we're nice to people who are nice to us. Jesus says one day, that's what the pagans do. The pagans are nice to the people who are nice to them. You, however, should be nice to those who are not nice to you, those that harm you, those that persecute you. You'll see in your outline there I've put a teaching, and today our text is calling us to live the gospel so clearly, and that's... Perhaps should be some some of us should pause right there. Live the gospel clearly, not veiled, not hidden, not sometimes, but live the gospel clearly, so that some in the world will persecute us for it. And when they do, we are to respond by blessing them and not cursing them. Today we're being equipped in how to respond like Christ to those who harm us because of Christ. Here's a newsflash: not everyone's going to like the gospel community. If we follow Christ and his spirit produces Romans 12 living in us, there are going to be some folks that don't like it. And when they don't, how do we react? And that's what we get to today. We're going to read one verse, Romans 12, 14. I'll ask you to stand, we'll read it together, and then we'll ask the spirit to teach us, to give us eyes and ears to see and hear. Romans 12, 14. There's what Paul wrote under the influence of the spirit. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Father, I pray as we transition now to see how the gospel community is received in the, gospel, in the community itself, to see how the gospel community is supposed to interact with the community and even react. Father, we're told that we are to bless others when we are persecuted and not to curse them. Father, we need you you are our only hope for this. Jesus is our only hope for living this text. So, Father, would your spirit give us ears to hear and eyes to see? And would you empower us to be the gospel community in the community? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. May I sit down. Now, outline just some very simple points this morning. The first is the reality of persecution. Without doubt. We are called not to just be the church gathered, but the church scattered. How many of you know 
God wants us to live the gospel in the world. Raise your hand. You know, you know this. In case you were in doubt of that, I wanted to remind you of some scripture. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my, what's the next word? Witnesses. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in, all, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all, what, nations, all right, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I would ask you, what's the best way to make a disciple? Is it just over the Internet? In New Orleans, New Orleans Seminary has extension centers, and they have what they call CIV technology, where they can be on TV in New Orleans, but it'll show up in the other extension centers. And it was really cool as a student, because as other students would fall asleep, you could see them. You know, you can see them, they can see you. And we finished one uh, class that was called Encountering the Biblical World, but we called it Encountering the Biblical Slides, because that's what Dr. Cole would just show us. And he would turn out all the lights, and it was over, you know? And so he turned out the lights in one of these, and he's showing us these slides, and it was awesome because there was this guy in one of the campuses that was just like this. And everyone's leaving. Like, we're all leaving, and the other ones, and, and he's, Dr. Cole's, like, tapping on the TV, you know, and it's like, hey, someone may want to wake him up, you know. And uh, I was just thankful that the Lord had woken me up prior to the lights coming back on in our class, as intriguing as the Wadi Farah was. But what we... What we see is the best way to make a disciple is not through the Internet. The best way to make a disciple is not through a television. Psalm 96 says this, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. That's in verse 3. It's going to say again in verse 10, Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Did you hear a word that was repeated there? Among, among, among. The best way to make disciples is to be among them, to be out in the world where they are. Second Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are Christ's ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. Do you know how God is going to make his gospel appeal to Baton Rouge? You and I. How's he doing with that? How's he doing? It's no mystery how the gospel spreads in Baton Rouge. God makes his appeal through us as we share the gospel, as we live the gospel. Then Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a what? Hill cannot be what? Hidden. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. How many of you have ever lit a lamp and then said, no, I don't really want it. I'm going to put it under a basket. No, the purpose to light the lamp is so you can see, right? You should come in here on Tuesday mornings at four something because we don't, when we designed this building, we apparently didn't think that putting a light switch by that door would be a good idea. So the only light switches are right back there in that table. And that's where I think about this verse all the time. Light it up, baby. I want to see, right? Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basketball on a stand that gives light to all in the house. And then he says this, in the same way, let your what? Light do what? Shine. He says, before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. You know, Israel was called to be the light among the nations. They ultimately failed. We see the ultimate fulfillment is one whose name is Jesus. He comes and he is light. And he stands up one day at a festival in which these huge menorahs would have been lit behind him. And he just says, you know what? I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. But what Jesus is telling us, friend, is that your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members, 
they should be able to see the light in us. So I want to be very clear. God has called us to live the gospel in the world. He's not called us just to go to Judson Retreat Center and stay there forever. He's not called us just to retreat in or to stay here. He's called us to live the gospel. Now, the reality is, if you do that, then the issue is not if you will be persecuted, it's when. If you choose to deny self, pick up cross, and follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. Hold your place and turn to Matthew 10. Look at the pep talk that Jesus gives his disciples as he's (coughs) getting ready to send them out. You think about pep talks before football games or pep talks you've had. What about the one where he says, uh, you're going to be beaten and killed? Go get them, boys. That's where some of our folks would be like, I, just, I, I thought this was an informational meeting. Who I, I have wondered up in, is this not Amway? How did, uh, this is the way. I'm in the wrong place. I need Amway. Right, so Matthew 10, beginning in verse 16. Here's his pep talk. Beholding a, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep. Now, that's a fierce animal, isn't it? I'm sending you out like a ninja sheep. What does sheep do? You know what I'm saying? I've never seen sheep jump kick anybody, you know? They just run or they fall. And then if they fall over, at some point you realize sheep can't get themselves back up, right? Awesome. So... Here's how we're sent out. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep. Oh, good. In the midst of wolves. Nice. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master in the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's what Paul tells Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Friends, if you really live it, you will be persecuted. And so this morning, we want to grasp the reality of it. This is what's coming. This is what's happening all over the world. And Jesus gave his disciples the very pep talk to say, you follow me. You do what I'm telling you to do. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be hated. And just as they called me the devil, they're going to call you the devil. But his servant is not above his master. It's enough to be like me. Persecution will come and persecution is coming. In, uh, in Iran, what's happening right now the Saizi court of the province of Gilan, Iran, has officially charged Pastor Youssef with denying that Muhammad was a prophet. The court stated that this resulted in apostasy because Youssef believes in Jesus and has shared his faith with others. The indictment, which was issued by a public prosecutor in the presence of a jury, stated, 
he has frequently denied the great prophet of Islam and the rule of the sacred religion of Islam. He's proven his apostasy by organizing evangelistic meetings and inviting others to Christianity, establishing a house church, baptizing people, expressing his faith to others, and denying Islamic values. According to court documents, when Pastor Youssef was asked about his faith, he told authorities, since I was born in a Muslim family, I was Muslim until I converted to Christianity at the age of 19. He openly acknowledged accepting Jesus Christ. The court also stated that the apostasy charge was determined a crime according to Islamic theologians. Pastor Youssef's defense attorneys have entered a not guilty plea to the charges, arguing that since there is no punishment specified in the Islamic judicial system of Iran and other penal laws on apostasy, their client has not committed a crime to deserve a punishment. The indictment, however, stated that as an apostate, Pastor Youssef will be executed. His lawyers have 20 days to appeal the indictment. The Voice of the Martyrs, if you're not familiar with that website, often gives updates of what's going on in our world because this kind of thing seems so foreign from us. But this is what's going on right now in Iran with Pastor Youssef. And, of course, the Voice of the Martyrs encourages us to pray that his appeal will be successful and that he'll be released. So I want to encourage you, Pastor Youssef, Y-O-U-C-E-F, that you would write that down, that you would pray for he and his family because this is a brother in Iran who's experiencing persecution, the very real reality of it today in our world. Two more that I would share with you. Pastor Paul is in India. He was attacked by an angry mob after sharing New Testaments with Muslim young people in the slum where he worked. And the police were called, but instead of dispersing the mob, the police arrested Pastor Paul. They said he was guilty of disturbing communal harmony by telling Muslim children about Jesus. Pastor Paul was marched off to jail, leaving behind his wife and two small children, but they weren't safe either. Angry Muslims threatened their landlord, and he told them they could no longer live in their rented house. Uh, Christians in India face fines, arrests, beatings, yet they go through these trials willingly to bring honor to Christ. They offer their homes, their families, and even their lives in a nation hostile to the Savior. This is going on this week. I want you to pray for Pastor Paul in India. And there's one more in India, Pastor Kennedy, that I would share with you. Pastor Kennedy arrived home from his church's New Year's Eve service last January 1st. His neighbors ran and told him the church was on fire. Hindu extremists had raided the church and burned everything in it. The extremists opposed Pastor Kennedy and his church simply because they continued to hold Christian celebrations in a village they had declared was for Hindus only. The radicals told him, if you continue having church, we'll burn you and your family in the same house. Pastor Kennedy replied, I will not stop my ministry. Do whatever you want. I'll just pray. This is Pastor Kennedy, who's in India today, but willing to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. And I share all of that because, as we're told in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Friends, the reality is if we live Jesus persecution will come so should i pause and ask here are you sure you really want to follow jesus are you sure you really want to walk down this path this is not for wishy-washy this is a determined decision of i've yielded my life to christ and we're going to see how we do that but this is the reality i want to show you next the reason for the persecution the more we live, Ephesians 2.10, that says we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, the more we will be persecuted. And I just thought, isn't it ironic? The greater good we do, the more they will hate us. 
the world wants to be clothed and they want to be fed and they want to be sheltered. They just don't want it to be in Jesus' name. Jesus is the dividing line, friends, not food and clothes and water. That's not the dividing line. But when you do it in the name of Jesus, that's where the divide comes in. When you do it for the gospel and not just to be good, then that's where the divide comes in. And we don't do it just for the good. We feed, we clothe, we minister for the sake of the gospel. And so there is a reason for the persecution. And Jesus says, it's because of me. It's not because of you. It's because of me. In Matthew 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Matthew 10.25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. I've put these references for you so that you can have them and look at them later. But John 15 says this. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jim Boyce has said, the world does not hate Christians because of what they are in themselves. In ourselves, we're nothing. We're nothing in ourselves. The world hates Christians because it hates Christ. And because we are followers of Christ and stand for his cause against the standards of the world. So the reality, friends, if we follow Christ, we're going to be persecuted. And the reason is because the world hates Christ. The world hates Christ. And we're going to see that why in just a moment. But he says in John 5, we're not of the world. And what ways are we not of the world? Friend, if you live Romans 12, if the Spirit produces Romans 12, you won't be of this world. If we do what it says in Romans 12, You're not going to be of this world. If we live the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember what Jesus said? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be what? Does anyone remember? Satisfied. He says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. You go down four verses later and it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for, do you remember? Righteousness sake. Righteousness sake. So you have this little parentheses here, even in the, in the, Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be satisfied, and then you're going to be persecuted. Well, what are you persecuted for? What comes between there? Well, it says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You show mercy, you're displaying righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The issue is this, the Lord gives you his righteousness. You live that, pour that out, and you will be persecuted for it. Why are we persecuted? Because of Jesus, not because of us, and because the world hates Jesus. It says in John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Do you know the truth? The world doesn't want the light of the gospel of Christ, but it's exactly what the world desperately needs. It's exactly what the world desperately needs. And Jesus himself says, when I came into the world and shined the light, they didn't want the light because it exposed their darkness. And as you go and live the gospel, not everyone is going to be grateful that they see Jesus in you because they're not going to like what's exposed in them because of that. And so what's going to happen is they're going to persecute you. But, you know, every interstate has an exit ramp eventually, right? Let me give you a way to avoid that. It's in your notes. Candlish says, 
if our Christianity is lukewarm, if we seldom openly identify with Christ's cause, then the danger of persecution and the resulting temptation to retaliate will be slight. You know how you can avoid persecution? Don't live the gospel. You know how you can avoid persecution? Don't look a lot like Jesus. And honestly, some of our congregations, that's where they are. They don't look a lot like Jesus, and so there's not much persecution, and there's not much gospel impact in that city. So the reality is we will be persecuted. Number two, the reason is because of Jesus. So that brings us to the third aspect of our passage here in Romans 12. What's our reaction to the persecution? That's what we're trying to equip you today. Here's how we should react. Here's how, what the text is calling us to. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How many of you know that when someone hits you, the natural thing is not to bless? How many of you have ever been struck by someone and your natural thing was, thank you, Jesus, would you do good for them? How many of you have ever been slapped on Facebook or someone has harmed you on Facebook and your immediate response is, I love this person. God bless them. Let your favor be on them, right? The natural tendency is to do what? When I slid down the slide in kindergarten and that little boy kicked me in the shin with his cowboy boots, my first natural reaction was to cry. My second was to get mad and go tell. (laughs) Our natural reaction is to strike back, right, friends? That's natural. It's natural to wish harm, to curse them, as Paul says, Moreover, there will be more persecution and thus a greater danger of cursing the more pronounced is our Christianity. The more we stand out for Christ, the more we will be persecuted and the greater the danger of our wanting to strike back. You see what we're saying here? If you really follow Jesus this morning, then there's going to be a great temptation, a great reality. You're going to be persecuted. And then when that happens, there's going to be a great temptation that you don't display Jesus, but you display you. So this is what we're being called to. He's saying, look, the more you live Jesus, the greater opportunity you're going to have to be persecuted and the greater opportunity you're going to have to ultimately curse someone rather than bless them. Well, what does it mean to bless? To bless is this idea of a good word. Really, it's asking God to do good to them. It's asking God to bestow his favor on them. And Jesus' line of thought is we are to seek out and as far as possible affect the good of other people, even our enemies. We don't do good just to those who do good to us. We want to do good to all. The opposite then is cursing. And to curse means to ask God to bring disaster or spiritual ruin on a person. If you want to know what it is, it's what God does to Jesus when he's on the cross. That's what we're asking. Do that to them. Give them your wrath. Turn your face from them. Hold back your peace and your mercy and your grace. Give them the full brunt. That's what it means to curse. To bless, on the other hand, says make your face shine upon them. Bestow your favor upon them. So, friends, here's what we're being called to do. When we live Jesus and people hate that, we are called then to react with Jesus and ask for their blessing rather than their demise. And I assure you, you don't get there by being a good person. And you don't get there by self-improvement. You know how you end up living Romans twelve fourteen, Not because you're a good person, but because you're a gospel person. Our only hope for living this is Jesus Christ. Our only hope for living this text is Jesus. And we need to put our dependence on him. And I want to say to you that the issue is not just the action here of blessing them. It's the attitude that goes along with it. So not just bless them but want to bless them, right? It's one thing if they 
smack you down and then you're like bless them do good to them but inside you're like i hate them you know friend what you do and how you do it is equally important in the eyes of the lord and for the gospel and so we're not talking about just blessing them we're talking about wanting to bless them how in the world do you get there again jesus jesus is our only hope so uh we're going to see later on in in two sundays that not only uh, do we bless them but we feed them we give them something to drink. We clothe them. We're going to get to that. But I want to encourage you, there's another thing. Not only are we called to react with blessing, but we're also called to rejoice. When we're persecuted, we're called to rejoice. In Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says this, Rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Peter writes in First Peter, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Friends, if you're being persecuted for Christ, it's because his spirit is empowering you to give that witness. And he says, don't just regret it, rejoice in it. Be glad in that. Don't be bitter about that. I feel that we are sometimes the people, one, we don't live the gospel enough for anyone to see. And then when we do, we're upset that they're upset at us for living the gospel. And so we regret the persecution rather than rejoicing. Friends, we're being called today, rejoice even in the persecution. For your reward is great in heaven. And you know what? You're identified both with the suffering of the prophets and the suffering of Christ. And as we tend to do, we turn it into our own little self. I'm the only one who's ever suffered for Jesus. No one else has ever suffered for Jesus. I'm just going to forget what I read in the rest of the New Testament about people being stoned to death. I'm the only one, right? We turn it in on ourselves, and that's why Peter says, suffering's happening on the whole world, your brothers in the world. For instance, Luz. This is a picture of Luz. She and her husband moved to a remote village in Colombia. Her husband's name was Diego. And in 2007, they left their family and friends to pastor a church in this Colombian village. Their family, fearing for their safety, warned them not to go. Five people had recently been murdered there by the Marxist FARC, F-A-R-C, guerrillas. It's an anti-government revolutionary army, and they've been fighting against the government there for decades. They fund their warfare through kidnappings, extortion, drug trafficking, and protection of drug traffickers. They hate Christian pastors because they believe Christianity hurts their recruitment efforts among young men. But despite all of that, Luz and Diego went to this village. What about us? Would we go? Luz and Diego go to this village. They had one young child, and she was pregnant with twins. They moved their belongings and moved to the new village, and they were there for 15 days. Diego went out to buy a microphone for the church and never came back. His dismembered body was left on Luz's doorstep in a garbage bag two days later. In one sense, friends, we say it makes no sense. These people have been obedient for the gospel for 15 days. Friends, this is where God's sovereignty plays out, and this is not for us to question. I would rather be faithful for 15 days than unfaithful for 15 years. I'd rather be faithful for 15 days if that's what the Lord requires of me 
than hiding and being in disobedience for 15 years, eating biscuits at Momo's. Well, what's Luz supposed to do? Because now the twins are in her womb and she has a young person. How's she supposed to react to these people who have killed her husband? What does Romans 12, 14 say she's supposed to do? Bless them and do not curse them. Bless them. This other woman, Gloria, her husband was a pastor in Columbia as well until he was called outside their house and shot five times in front of their two children because he was preaching the gospel. Gloria is still dealing with a verse like Romans twelve fourteen and being able to do that. Would you pray for Luz and Gloria? Would you put them on your list? L-U-Z and Gloria? Because, friends, this is, this is where reality meets the road. We, we're going to go from here. Some of us are going to go to McDonald's for lunch. Some of us are going to go, and we're not going to think about twelve fourteen very much. My task is still to equip us so that if God calls you to Columbia and your husband winds up in a garbage bag, then you bless the people who did it. How? Does Luz bless people and not curse them? Simple answer. Jesus. Jesus. In our own, we will fail at this. In our own, we want to curse them. In our own, we want them destroyed. So how can we do that? I put on your outline a little plan. <coughs> Friends, live in Romans twelve fourteen requires being intentional, not accidental. It's a predetermined reaction decision. It's what we're doing now. We're talking about it. We're equipping you so that when it comes, you know what God wants, and then you cry out and say, produce that in me, Jesus. Produce that in me. It begins with grasping that as we live the gospel, not everyone will like it. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Hear what I'm telling you. If you deny self, take up cross, follow Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. They're not all going to like you. So just prepare for that. Some of our students are getting ready to go to New York next week. Raise your hand if you're going to New York on a mission trip next week. So we have some of our college students that are going to New York. Here's the thing. Not everyone in New York is going to want to hear the gospel. Not everyone in New York is going to appreciate what you're doing. Not everyone is going to greet you with a high five and say, way to go. They may use any other denomination of hands and combos to greet you. So I'm saying that we're not all going to be welcomed in this way. So get it in your mind now. If I go and I'm living the gospel, some are going to reject that. Two, then determine how are you going to respond with blessing rather than cursing. How do you do that? It's the third point. Rely fully on Christ. That's what we're called to do, friends, every time, right? If we're going to love others rightly, we must meditate on the cross constantly. So let me transition now, and we're going to celebrate this table because this is our hope for living Romans twelve fourteen. This is the good news for the world, that there is a Christ who helps us overcome even this wretchedness in ourselves. But here's what I want you to hear. The more we focus on ourselves or our circumstances, then the less we're going to look to Christ. But when Jesus was on the cross, do you remember this? When Jesus was on the cross, do you, do you remember what's recorded by Matthew? There are people who are passing by Jesus. And you know what they're doing? Do you remember? They're mocking him. Or as Matthew says, they're deriding him. 
They're mocking him as he's being crucified. They're wagging their heads and they're saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he who saved others cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified also reviled him in the same way. Can you imagine the intensity of it? How many of you would say that's persecution? How many of you would say that's persecution? And it's the height of it because he's dying for the ones that are yelling around him. He's dying for the ones that are mocking him. And then here's this incredible statement. Luke is the only one that records it. Here's what Jesus says. Father, do what? Forgive them, for they don't know what they do. That's what Jesus prayed when he was persecuted. Here's what Barnhouse has said. When the nations were raging and peoples imagining a vain thing, he did not move to destroy them. He did not destroy Adam when he sinned, but promised a savior. And began the long course of history so that man could have opportunity upon opportunity to repent and return to God. He did not destroy us when we were ungodly sinners. He came from heaven to save us. He came into the camp of his enemies and allowed them to do their will against him in order to establish the foundation of our redemption. When we were without strength, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. He did not save us by demonstrating his mighty power. In some miracle, he saved us. He saved us by letting us kill him. He says, how astonishing this is. And when he rose from the dead, he did not judge those who behaved so wickedly against him. The Jerusalem to which he held out his arms before he died was still the center of his loving thought. He commanded his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But he commanded them to begin at Jerusalem. Was this not heaping coals of fire upon the heads of his enemies? And did it not melt the hearts of many? Here's what I pray all the time. Father, conform me to Christ. Produce this in me. How do you bless them instead of persecute them? One of the things is you remember, friends, you too were once an enemy to Christ. You too. And were it not for Christ rescuing us, we would be just like them or worse. I wonder then what happens. We become broken for their lostness. We become broken for their blindness. We become broken because they're still held in captivity by sin. And we're able to pray and say, God, free them like you did me. Free them like you did me. And it's all because of this table. All because of the picture of what Christ did for us. How did Jesus demonstrate his love to enemies? He died for them. And he is our only hope for living for him. He's our only hope for living, Romans 12. It's not an issue, friends, of whether we're supposed to or not. This is what the gospel community is called to do when we go in the community. Is that us? Let me ask you a few questions before our deacons come and prepare the table, and we'll hand out the elements. My question, first one is, are we experiencing persecution for Jesus' sake? Or is our Christianity too veiled, too hidden, too discreet to really ruffle anyone around us? When persecution comes, are we rejoicing or are we regretting it? Are we blessing those who persecute us? Are we living Romans 12?
Let me pray for us, and we're going to transition to this table. Father, thank you for today, and thank you for the service. And Father, thank you for unhurried prayer earlier in the service. These are important things. We need to take them to you, and we need to take them as your people gathered. Father, we thank you for your text and what we've seen. And Father, our only hope in living Romans 12.14 is Romans 12.1, and it's your mercies. Your mercies are new every day. Please drive home to us. This is not good living. This is gospel living. And our only hope is your son Jesus. Our natural inclination is going to be to respond harm with harm. But in Christ alone, we can, instead of being bitter, we can be broken for these who harm us. Father, I pray we would not be the secret church. I pray that our Christianity would be very evident. As people look at us, they see Jesus. As they see what we do, it's the things that Jesus would do. Father, I pray you would help us to realize that if we do this, if we go to grace, not everyone in Capitol Heights wants us there. If we go to these neighborhoods that are around here, not everyone wants us. Not everyone at LSU is going to be receptive to the gospel. So, Father, help us to understand persecution is going to come. Help us not be so self-centered that we think it's about us, but it's about your son Jesus. And they hated him. The world loves darkness and wants to continue its deeds in darkness. And if they do, then they will be destroyed. And so, Father, because we know the truth and because we've been rescued, we have compassion. Father, we ask that you would help us to live boldly. And when we are persecuted, that your spirit would help us to live 1214, that we would pray for you to do good to these, that we would pray for you to open their eyes as you did ours, that you would give them life as you did us, that you would set the captives free as you did us. And the way that was accomplished was in the great sacrifice of your son Jesus, placing our sin, the sins of your enemies, on your son that we may no longer be enemies, that we might be your very sons and daughters. The gospel is indeed great news. May we celebrate it as we engage in this table and know Christ gave his body. It was broken and ripped apart for us. And he gave his blood. For without the blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. And he did it all as our substitute. For nothing will be impossible with you. You have made reconciliation possible. That you might be both just and the justifier. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.